Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey guys, it's Mike Rowe, and this is The Way I Heard It, the only five-minute podcast that takes an hour to listen to. This is episode number 183, and it's called Play That Funky Music, White Boy. The episode has absolutely nothing to do with Wild Cherry or Rob Parisi, the musical genius who made that song famous way back in 1976. But I do love the tune, and the title struck me as appropriate given the themes and a few parallels in today's story. We start off with chapter six from my book. It's called Another Tortured Artist. And we conclude with a lively conversation about why it is people go to such extraordinary lengths these days to change the way they look. Chuck and I then discuss what I believe could be the finest piece of classical music ever composed and the inspired decision to use that piece of music in what may prove to be the finest piece of filmmaking ever made about the Second World War and the brave men who fought it. It's a wide-ranging mix of this and that, and I call it Play That Funky Music, White Boy, and it all starts right now. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Chapter 6. Another Tortured Artist Back in the 70s, before the world knew him by a single name, a battered boy stared into an unforgiving mirror and considered his reflection. A split lip, a swollen jaw, a black eye. Painful, but not as painful as the words that accompanied the beating. Look in that mirror, boy. Your lips are too fat for your mouth, your nose is too flat for your face, and your skin doesn't match your brother's. I'm trying to run a business here. The boy in the mirror sighed. His father was right. His face was not the face of a pop star. It was a flawed face, a swarthy face, a face that he could no longer live with. In his mother's makeup cabinet, the boy found a solution, a glass jar filled with white powder. He opened it, sprinkled some powder into his hands, and began to rub it onto his face, wincing as he did so. His wounds were still tender, courtesy of the man who wouldn't tolerate a single mistake on stage or even in rehearsal. But, gradually, the boy in the mirror saw his complexion lighten. Would it be enough to mollify his violent and unpredictable father? Would it be enough to satisfy the people who paid to see him perform? Over time, as the boy's talent became more and more undeniable, those questions became less and less relevant. By the end of the 70s, the boy 
was famous. By the 80s, he was a national sensation. By the 90s, he was an international phenomenon. By the turn of the century, he was the undisputed king of pop. But for all his popularity, he never stopped obsessing over the color of his skin, even when his legacy was firmly in place, even when his personal life began to unravel, even when his unusual relationship with a 14-year-old boy led to a scandal and a courtroom drama. Even in the grip of depression and addiction, the king of pop concealed his true complexion right up to the day he died, alone, in his bed. If all this sounds vaguely familiar, perhaps it's because you know the story of another battered boy who stood before another unforgiving mirror two centuries later, in the 1970s, and considered his reflection, his split lip, swollen jaw, and black eye. Painful, but not as painful as the words that had accompanied the beating. Look at yourself, boy. Your lips are too fat for your mouth, your nose is too flat for your face, and your skin doesn't match your brother's. I'm trying to run a business here. It's funny how history so often repeats itself. Like his predecessor, the boy in this mirror was never comfortable with the source of his own reflection. He, too, was born with a skin tone that didn't match that of his brother's. He, too, was raised by a violent, unpredictable man who exploited his talent at every turn. And he, too, left behind a collection of popular music unlike anything the world has ever seen. But, unlike his predecessor, this tortured artist lived in the era of plastic surgery. If you Google his name, you can see the evidence for yourself. A new nose, a new chin, new lips, new eyelids, another new nose, new cheekbones, new hair, another new nose, new eyebrows, new eyelashes, one more new nose, and through it all, a complexion that got lighter and lighter right up to the day he died, alone, in his bed. It's tempting to blame the father for screwing up the son, and in this case, perhaps we should. By all accounts, Joseph Jackson did a real number on the brilliant, deeply troubled artist we know today by a single name, Michael. On the other hand, the old man did train and manage and shape the career of the most popular musician of our time as did Johann, two centuries before. Like Joseph, Johann forced his son to perform and rehearse every single day of his young life. Like Joseph, Johann relied upon his son to pay the bills, a son with a complexion that he felt was simply too dark. Yet, if you Google his name, you'll find no visual evidence of his Moorish ancestry. No portraits that reflect his natural skin tone and no busts that reveal a single non-German feature. Thanks to a bottomless jar of white powder, Johann's son was able to keep his complexion a secret, one that the Nazis were happy to reinforce a hundred years after his death by insisting to the world that his unique musical genius was proof of German exceptionalism and a credit to the Aryan race. 
Happily, the most tortured artist of all time never knew that his music would make it onto Hitler's playlist. A small blessing, perhaps, for the battered boy who was never comfortable in his own skin. The lonesome bachelor who never found his immortal beloved. The legendary composer who went deaf at the height of his powers but kept on creating even though he couldn't hear the applause his many masterpieces inspired. Such were the burdens of the original King of Pop, the man we remember today by a single name, Beethoven. I was reminded of Beethoven the other day as I was flicking around the TV dial. It was a rainy Sunday in San Francisco, and I had just stumbled across Steven Spielberg's Band of Brothers. Like Caddyshack, Jaws, and The Shawshank Redemption, Band of Brothers is something I can't not watch. And the scene I stumbled upon on this particular rainy Sunday is my favorite moment in the entire series. It's a scene I always rewind a few times whenever I happen upon it. It's shot in one take with a Steadicam, which I find more than a little impressive. But the mood it evokes is what moves me. The sequence begins in the wake of an Allied attack with the old shell-shocked citizens of a bombed-out German town walking like zombies through the rubble of their neighborhood, pulling their busted possessions out from massive piles of debris. As a small group of American GIs observe the tableau, we hear what might be the greatest piece of music ever composed, the sixth movement of Beethoven's Opus 131. It's not just a soundtrack for the scene, it's part of the scene itself. For nearly three minutes, four German men who have just lost their homes, an impromptu string quartet, stand in the ruins. As their countrymen pick through the rubble, they play this devastatingly beautiful movement, an amazing sequence that concludes when a G.I. opines, I'll say this much for the Krauts, they sure know how to clean up. All you need is a little Mozart, another G.I. replies. At which point, Lieutenant Lewis Nixon, played flawlessly by Ron Livingston, the guy from Office Space, corrects the soldier with two lines delivered with a perfect blend of authority and world-weary wonder. That's not Mozart, he says. That's Beethoven. Why do I love this scene so much? In part, I think it's the juxtaposition of beauty and destruction. Placed so closely together, each magnifies the other. The combination makes me weep every time I see it. I sympathize with the German civilians, but I empathize deeply with the G.I. who confuses Mozart with Beethoven. As someone who's publicly mistaken on a near-daily basis, I know the embarrassment of being corrected on camera. Indeed, when it comes to being corrected, you might say, I am an expert. On Dirty Jobs, I was corrected by hundreds of different bosses in every imaginable setting. As the perpetual new guy, I was corrected on windmills and oil derricks, coal mines and construction sites, frack tanks, pig farms, slime lines, and lumber mills. Today, I have a podcast that wades into history and biography and a Facebook page filled with legions of people determined to keep me honest. What I can tell you is, not much has changed. 
But I can also assure you, not all correctors are created equal. Take my cantankerous field producer, Dave Barsky. Like my father, Barsky's incapable of listening to a story if some stray fact seems to be out of joint. Both men will interrupt a joke if they think it's being told the wrong way, or a lecture if they disagree with something the professor says. In fact, a few minutes into this book, Barsky is going to hear about Mel Brooks and call me immediately, guaranteed. Hey, genius, you'll say, the vinyl record you mentioned couldn't have been vinyl. It was shellac. It had to be, because vinyl wasn't used for record manufacturing in 1944. This will be the highlight of Barsky's week. My dad, a former history teacher, will call immediately to ask how I knew that Custer's body was violated in the way I've described. You don't know that, he'll say. Experts still argue about it. Just because people claim it's the case doesn't make it so. His exclamation points will be bouncing off satellites and entering my ears like arrows. My mom is also a hopeless corrector of the apologetic variety. At least, she pretends to be. Oh, Michael, she'll say, I'm so sorry, but there's a double negative at the top of this section. You said, I can't not watch. Sorry, Mike. It's a great story, but I thought you'd want to know. Personally, I don't mind being corrected, even when I'm right. It's nice to know that people are paying attention. But when I am corrected, I prefer it to be in the style of Lieutenant Dixon. He didn't scold the G.I. for confusing Mozart with Beethoven. He wasn't haughty, pedantic, or disappointed. His words came with no apologies, no exclamation points, and no attempt to lord his knowledge over his men. In fact, if you watch the scene on YouTube, you'll see that he barely glances at the man he corrects. He simply rectifies the situation definitively while remaining focused on the final few measures of Beethoven's movement. By the way, I ran into Ron Livingston a few years ago in L.A. He and some friends were eating sushi in a place called Katsuya at a strip mall off Ventura Boulevard. I was a few tables away with my high school friend Chuck. Now, I have never approached a celebrity in my life, especially one with a mouthful of fish, but I couldn't help myself. I walked over to Ron's table and stood there, quietly, making things awkward until he returned my gaze. I don't think Ron recognized me, but he did raise his eyebrows in the universal expression that says, What the hell do you want? As his friends and my friend looked on, no doubt asking themselves the same question, I leaned in, paused for dramatic effect, and said, All you need is a little Mozart. For a moment, I thought he would leave me hanging, but he didn't. Lieutenant Dixon swallowed his fish, took a sip of his beer, and with barely a glance in my direction, said precisely what I hoped he would say. That's not Mozart. That's Beethoven. Point is, the story that comes next doesn't include a single mistake. But if you hear one, please drop by my Facebook page and tell me all about it. And while you're there, say hello to my dad. We say we want to be challenged. We say we want to hear all sides. But that's not how we act 
when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself. I challenge my guests. I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll tell you one thing about the crowds. She'll clean up good. Yeah. Well, he needs a little more, son. Beethoven. Sorry, sir. It's not Mozart. That's Beethoven. Dude, it still gets me. I'm literally sitting here. I've got goosebumps listening to Ron Livingston deliver that line as that music is playing. Amazing. Yeah, it it, it really is. I, I mean, the thing that gets me is that you're hearing some of the most beautiful sounds ever created and you're looking at just utter the utter destruction of war and how it affects people. It's such a great duality. Is that the right word? No, it's good. Look, I mean, it's so good. And I, I think I, I made this point in the story, but there, there are a number of uh, shows that, you know, if I stumble across and I'm flicking around, I simply have to stop. Right. And, you know, Band of Brothers is somewhere near the top of the list, but it's, <laughs> but it's so dangerous, you know, because it's a nine-part series. <laughs> it's an investment. Yeah. And this is, this is uh, part nine, actually. Right. Yeah. It's an episode called Why We Fight. And uh, the scene you just played, by the way, we're not going to get sued, are we, for this, you think? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's fair use because we're talking about it. Um, uh, These laws are, are just so god-awful. I mean, it, if you're just joining us, Chuck and I have uh, made a, a career of bemoaning the fact that just because it's on YouTube doesn't mean you can play it in a podcast. But there are all these fair use laws and there are all these exceptions, and hopefully we're on the... Uh, we're on the right side of the law with this one. But I really wanted people to hear that because if they don't know w- what I was writing about, and if, you, and if you haven't seen it, you know, to your point, it's not just the music, it's not just the acting, it's not just the scene, it's not just the historical context. It's all of it. And I had heard that piece of music before. It's, uh, of course, Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 14 in C-sharp minor. Of course. And, and that movement... Uh, is uh, Opus 131. And so I had heard it, but until I saw those four guys play it, and those are real musicians, by the way. You know, um, Spielberg just did a, a brilliant thing. He put the actual soundtrack for his scene in the scene. And so you get to watch this amazing musical performance while... These poor people are trying to put their lives back together. And those are Germans, obviously, right? They've just, the Allies have just bombed the bejesus out of their town and they're picking up the pieces of what's left. And this amazing music happens and you just sit there slack jawed watching the whole thing. And Ron Livingston puts a cherry on the Sunday. I just, he just couldn't have done it better. And I, I, I don't know why such a simple, obvious line gets me every time. But just 
That's not Mozart. It's the yeah. It's Beethoven. Beethoven. And you and you have to remember too that you know Beethoven's dad, the only thing he wanted for his son and for him, of course, was to out Mozart Mozart. Everything Beethoven was groomed to do was to be the next Mozart or something better. And so to have Ron Livingston juxtapose those two in that moment. In the finale of Band of Brothers, one of the few TV programs I can't turn away from if I happen across it. You know, that's why that chapter's in the book. That's amazing. I didn't know that about uh, Beethoven. Be- Beethoven was jealous of Mozart, uh, or his father oh, wanted him his to. His father was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mozart was the toast of Europe back then, and uh, Johann. Beethoven's dad knew his kid was a prodigy and believed he could uh, <laughs> he could beat the greatness into him, which basically is what he did. He just beat the crap out of that kid oh, day after day after day, and uh, yeah, some accounts say you know he his deafness was brought on by the beatings. Oh. That really hasn't been confirmed. He started to lose his hearing when he was uh, around twenty eight or so. Uh, and was completely gone by 45, 46 years old. And so he died at 56, never hearing anything he composed for the last 10 years. In fact, Chuck, he never heard this piece. He never heard the string quartet number 14 in C-sharp minor, opus 131. And he wrote that it was quite possibly the most important work of his life. I'm looking for the quote right now. But how would he know that? If well, he couldn't he, hear it. Not only could he not hear it, he it was never performed when he was alive. <laughs> he could only hear it in his head. He could only yeah. ever hear the wow. thing in his head, right? He never heard it played. But listen to this. Schubert, after hearing that piece, said, After this, what is left for us to write? <laughs> and Schumann said uh, that this entire quartet, he called it, quote, it possesses a grandeur which no words can possibly express. They seem to me to stand on the extreme boundary of all that has hitherto been attained by human art and imagination. Well, clearly he never saw Band of Brothers. <laughs> clearly. Right? Clearly. Wow. Anyway, yeah, an amazing piece of music written by, I think, the most important composer of, uh, of all time and, and dragged into the modern zeitgeist by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's uh, let's st- let let's stick on Beethoven since the, you've you've given us like my head has exploded with all the facts you've given us about uh, Beethoven. So, what is it that you did with this story that's different than anything else that's ever been written about Beethoven? Well, I mean, look, it's a it's it's a high bar, but what. What I try to do with each of these, even if it's just in a really small way, is make some sort of juxtaposition or comparison or observation that that is unique. And as you know, there is nothing left that's unique or very, very, very little. Um, But I was struck by the fact that nobody, to my knowledge anyway, had compared Michael Jackson's life to Beethoven's life. And I didn't set out to do that. I set out to write a story about Michael Jackson. And I started looking for new things about Michael Jackson. And uh, in the course of reminding myself a lot of what I had forgotten about Michael Jackson, 
Um, I learned about the abuse he endured as a kid. His dad, Joseph, was just not a good guy. Mm-hmm. You know, He beat all of them, purportedly, but uh, Michael took it hard. And um, I was also struck by the degree to which he changed his appearance over his life. Again, this is nothing new. Any fan or just anybody with a pulse knows that the guy took plastic surgery to, to a whole new level. And then, you know, the controversy of the, uh, the skin whitening. A lot of people said he was bleaching his skin. Other people say, you know, he had that condition. What is it? Vit- Vitiligo? Vitil- Vitiligo? Uh, V-I-T-I-L-I-G-O. Yeah. I guess. Can't pronounce like- it, but it, you know, it purportedly caused parts of his skin to lighten. Right. And then people say, well, he was just trying to even that out. Right. But basically, you know, he, he worked pretty hard to change his complexion. I like to say that, he started out as an adorable black boy and slowly turned himself into an old white woman, which I think is kind of sad. Is that what you like to say, Chuck? I do. I like to say that. Well, I mean, look, it, it was that general transformation that's undeniably odd. And, and you yeah. know, I mean, no, no disrespect. The guy was truly the king of pop in our lifetime, but he was also the king of chameleons. And he changed his appearance radically. And as I was reading about all of that, I remembered an article I had seen back in 2015 in a newspaper called the uh, Concordian. It's a student newspaper. You have a in... subscription to that, don't you? <laughs> I, I never miss an episode. <laughs> but it, it was a controversial article, and it quoted an earlier article written in something called The Week back in 1930 by a, uh, by a black journalist named Carl Murphy who first began to circulate the idea that Beethoven had also taken pains to change his appearance with the constant application of powder because he was a little blacker than uh, his dad wanted him to appear. And so... It was back in the 30s that the question first started to make the rounds, was Beethoven really black? And this article in the Concordian took it to a whole new level. And they found all kinds of quotes. Here, I'll I'll read you a couple real quick. Um, These are descriptions of Beethoven from the day. And remember, if you Google his image right now, you'll find hundreds of portraits. But that's all. And they're all different. You can put them next, one next to the other, and, and, and very few. You know, it looks like a lineup, you know, <laughs> uh, in a police department. Like, they're like 20 different dudes. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't really know what the guy looked like. Although his favorite portrait, according to Beethoven himself, was of a, uh, of a pencil sketch. And in that sketch, uh, hold on, I'll find it right here. Uh, here it is. The photo he had printed and reprinted, distributing it to all his friends and family as a memento. In this photo, Beethoven's face is broad, his hair is unruly, and his skin is very, very dark. And this is where things begin to add up. That's in the author's own estimation. The, from, uh, from the 30s. <clears throat> Pardon me, from um, the 30s. N- no, from, <clears throat> from 2015 in the Concordian. Oh. Right. And they find other quotes from the day describing Beethoven. For instance, quote, wide, thick-lipped mouth, short, thick nose, 
proudly arched forehead. Quote, Negroid traits, dark skin, flat, thick nose. Quote, his face reveals no trace of the German. He was so dark that people dubbed him the Spangol, or the dark-skinned. They called him the Spaniard. Quote, coal black hair, stood straight up on his head. Quote, his somewhat flat, broad nose and rather wide mouth, his small, piercing eyes and swarthy, dark complexion, pockmarked into the bargain, gave him a strong resemblance to a mulatto. Quote, complexion was brownish, his hair was thick, black, very bristly. Quote, short, stocky, broad shoulders, short neck, round nose, blackish brown complexion. It goes on and on. <laughs> Clearly. I mean, <laughs> right. And so in 2015, I read this article that basically says, yeah, Beethoven was black, but he took pains to appear lighter than he really was. And that's when I thought, well, wait a minute. Who was the king of pop in 1790? For all intents and purposes, it, it, it was Ludwig van Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And who was the king of pop in, in 2005? Well, that'd be Michael Jackson. So then the question becomes over a couple of hundred years, what do these two really have in common? And I thought maybe the thing I wanted to lean into most was the idea that both tried to change their appearance, because that really rhymed with a lot of what is going on today in pop culture. But ultimately, it was the dads that got me, reading an account of what Johan mm -hmm. did to his kid at eight years of age, the, the beatings. Chuck, he'd locked him in a basement for sometimes a day at a time if he screwed up his lessons. If he made a mistake on the piano, he'd beat him, he'd box his ears. He'd, I mean, really, really awful stuff. And you read the accounts of growing up Jackson. It's not, it's not that bad, but it's bad. It's physical. You know, they all talk about getting whipped and beaten regularly. Uh, you know, not for not minding their manners, not for being disrespectful to their elders, for screwing up the music, right? You screw up the music and both Joseph Jackson and Johann Van Beethoven would beat the hell out of you. Now, both of those men probably would argue that they, their sons wouldn't be the artists that they became if they hadn't done that. Who knows? But even if you're right, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a fair uh, trade at all. No, no, <laughs> no. But ultimately, in the end, it's you, these two men, Jackson and, and Beethoven, had such immense talent that it's difficult to articulate. And yet, they both took extraordinary steps to change their appearances and essentially try and become somebody they weren't. And they were each blessed slash cursed with two dads who were just world-class pricks, no matter how you slice it. Right. And so there's the story. And there's the juxtaposition. And, um, and that's why I wrote it. Why is it, do you think, that, that people go to such extremes to change their appearance? You know, I mean, I think of Rachel Dolezal. Um, oh, man. Really? You want to go there? No, no, I don't. I don't. I just, <laughs> I just thought of her, and uh, I thought I'd say her name, but I don't want to go there. Well, since you invoked it, and look, I, I mean no disrespect to anyone, but it's a, it's a really big question because the answer is, who knows? On the one hand, it's nobody's business. You know, if you <laughs> right. want to have a facelift, yeah. if you want to get new eyelids, if you want to get new hair well, then you're changing your appearance, which is one click away from 
changing your identity. You know, why are you doing that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you just feel like it. You know, Joan Rivers would tell you quite candidly. <laughs> I still remember she said to me, I think I write about this. You do. Yeah, chapter. I know. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> what? One more facelift. I'm going to have a goatee. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, people change their image, their appearance, their identity for any number of reasons. It could be self-esteem. Personally, I think with Rachel, what's her name? I I think she was slipping into the, um, what you call the, the draft, you know, of, uh, what is it, cultural appropriation. I think... I think she changed personally because there was an upside to being perceived as black when she wanted to be seen that way. Um, Beethoven, there was a downside <laughs> to being seen as too dark, you know, for him. Liz Warren, high cheekbones, right? You know, did she accentuate her ethnicity by applying makeup to accentuate her cheekbones and thereby appear more Native American? I don't know. Some people say she did. What? Do Why people really do- say that? I don't know. I'm kind of out here without a net. But look, we don't even have to go back that far. What's what's her name? Uh, Hilaria Baldwin. Oh, geez. She just got crucified Yeah, because she likes to talk in a Spanish accent and wants people to think she was born somewhere where she, she wasn't born. And, you know, she became a huge target. And I, I, I felt kind of sorry for her. I mean, people were brutal to her. Um, but it just goes to show, I think, that in this day and age, more so than any other, authenticity is for sale. And if you if you suddenly appear to be uh, something other than what people think you've claimed to be, they're going to eat you alive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, look, it, it still happens to me. People yeah. look at dirty jobs and they figure I'm, you know, a handyman. <laughs> and then they hear a story about how I sang in the opera. Yeah. <laughs> And they're like, wait a minute. And then you mentioned that you don't know which end of the hammer to pick up. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, I I think the story itself is is interesting because it draws some some good parallels. But I think it's worth talking about because underneath it, you know, the good ones anyway, um, have some kind of resonance with what's going on today. And, you know, maybe it's a bridge too far to start comparing Rachel What's-Her-Name and Liz Warren and Hilaria Baldwin to Beethoven. Totally a bridge too far. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, now that I think about it, I mean, look, the difference between Joan Rivers, I mean, she talked about her plastic surgery Mm -hmm. in ways that were complete. I mean, she was proud of it, Right. And that made her more authentic, so nobody really gave her a lot of crap for it. Now, Michael Jackson didn't hide the fact that he was going under the knife, you know, several times a year. It only got a little squirrely when it came to the controversy around his skin color. How much of that was he doing on purpose? And he denied doing anything intentional, right? Yeah. And so... It's it's not. For we got me. eyes, Michael. We got eyes. You oh, know how how do thing. you how do you how do you claim that nothing has happened? No, no. I just suddenly my nose got really skinny and my skin got white. I don't. See what it. was that? You were singing something earlier that I didn't even recognize. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Uh, mama say, mama sa, mama pusa. 
What is, I, I don't even know that. Mama that's, say, that's, mama say, mama pusan. Mama say, mama say, mama pusan. Can we can we do that? Is that is that fair use? I don't even know what it's from. It's it's from a song. I think it's on the Thriller album. I had the Thriller album, which is why I think I know it. I mean, I remember that getting that album and thinking, "Wow, this is amazing." You know what? Speaking <sighs> of music and ethnicity, I read something else that I thought was interesting about Beethoven. Again, this is a bridge too far. I'm generalizing. Please don't. You know, oh God! But, no, but 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 it's interesting because Mozart and everybody who preceded him really, you know, the Western sort of beat, you know, the white beat is is usually one and three, right? So you got four beats in a bar, and it goes one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four, and that's white. You know, white, white meaning white. European. Yeah. Okay. Right. Western white, like you and I as white guys, you know, it's, it's sort of the, you know, what is it? The overbite, the bad dancing, you know, you're on the beat, right? It's one and two and three and four. And, <laughs> but Beethoven, one, two, Beethoven was war one and two and three and four and one and two. But a lot of his music is on the offbeat. It's syncopated more. And that, in a general way, um, is more uh, analogous to black music than white music. This according to... I'm not just... Not, hold on. I'm going to find I this. I feel like before. you're just making this up, man. His, no, his name is, Su, is uh, Suchet. Tom Sushit or Suchet. It's certainly true that in his music, this guy writes, who is a noted Beethoven expert that Beethoven's use of rhythm and dynamics was new to Western music. Emphasis was often put on the offbeat, for instance, on beats two and four of a bar, as opposed to the more normal one and three. So it's not just me, Charles. One, two, that. and three, four, and one, two, three, four. I can't even do it. I don't know. You can't even do it. That's how white That's how white. White Ugh. goes one and two and, and three, three and four and one and two. It's like a march. But the more syncopated is one and two and three and four. One, you with me? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to hear some uh, songs side by side. I'd like to get away from this topic as quickly as possible. <laughs> Can we move on to the grout of this particular chapter? And one of the things that comes up in it that is uh, repeated a lot throughout your book and throughout your life are the correctors. Oh now, you God. point out how... Livingston's delivery is he's like the perfect corrector because there's no judgment. He he could have easily gone, that's not Mozart. That's what I would have done, right? Sure. Mozart? No, that's Beethoven, you fool. You know, and he just does it. He just gently corrects without any judgment at all. I love that. Me too. And I didn't even think about it. (laughs) When I was watching that scene, because when I first saw Bands of, Band of Brothers, I wasn't, I wasn't even on Facebook, right? I wasn't, right. I wasn't dealing with the dynamic of, you know, six million of your friends are also six million people standing by to gently let you know if that participle is dangling or if that infinitive was split. Or it, it's not just grammatical errors. Any, anything today, any mm. single thing that we witness that is out of sync is something that we have somehow gotten permission 
<laughs> to correct. And and now we have the means to do it. Right. right. It's and look, that I make a big deal of it, not because I'm particularly sensitive to it, but because it is cancel culture's little baby boy, right? It's the thing that grows into cancel culture. The need. Yes. The need to fix, Ugh. the need to have it all together. Ugh. Because then it begs the question, well, what do you do with all these people who are wrong about fill in the blank? So there's Ron Livingston, his character, uh, Lieutenant, uh, it was Nixon, right? Yes, was it Nixon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well-educated, went to school, he's an officer, and now he's standing next to this enlisted kid who, you know, doesn't have the benefit of that education, certainly never took any, you know, music appreciation classes. Right. But he hears beautiful music and just assumes, well, it's got to be, it's <laughs> right. got to be Mozart. Yeah. That's, you know? That's the and classical he, he, name I know, you know, that right. first comes to and mind. He's pro- and he's probably proud of knowing that. He took a shot. He, he took a shot. He wasn't trying to, you know, lord it over anybody. He just maybe wanted to share it with his commanding officer to let him know that he wasn't a complete moron and that he, that he knew some things. And, um, yeah, Livingston corrects him gently, matter-of-factly, without an ounce of rancor or self-righteousness, and just lets him know, and us, that's Beethoven. And there is no other soundtrack that ought to be playing in the midst of this level of heartache and destruction right. than Opus 131 from the quartet C-sharp minor. Now, before we move on to the uh, <clears throat> the other correctors, I just want to let everybody know that I can confirm that Livingston's story at Katsuya, we, we actually <laughs> right, were, were there. at Katsuya. And uh, we were getting ready to leave, and his party was. St- and you were like, "I think that's the guy from Office Space." <laughs> and and, right. and uh, what is his name? And I and I don't remember if we looked it up or anything, but I think you recalled it. You you remembered his name, and you yeah. you said, "I got to say something," and you went over there, which which was yeah. really out of character. I'd never seen you do that before. I've never, and to this day, yeah, I have never approached anyone with any level of fame. It's, I mean, I've I've run into some people in in public, and the most I would ever do is nod and just say thanks. Right, know? right. Well, what um, I loved afterwards when when you uh, you know you you just kind of walked by me and we went out outside, you know, because we, mm-hmm. we were leaving when you when you stopped to do that, and I said, "Did he know who you were?" And you were like, "I don't think so." <laughs> <laughs> well, but he was nice. <laughs> He was nice, and Dirty Jobs had been on the air maybe a couple of years at that point. Yeah, you know, and so I, I don't assume that he did. I mean, it, it would have been amazing had after I said, you know, all you need is a little Mozart. He'd have said that's Beethoven. It would have been amazing if he'd have said, uh, "Now get ready to get dirty." <laughs> <laughs> but no, he didn't do that. He, no, no. Yeah, it was, it was, he had no it was, idea it what was it was. Question. So on to but the But I'll correct- tell you something, Chuck. I'll tell okay. you something. Mm-hmm. I bet he knows now. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, give us a ring. We'll have you on. We should have you on this episode. Not Honestly, me. that's what this podcast That would have been be. great, yeah. Uh, you, you know, it started last week when my mom was on. Yes. We're like, oh, you know, this is, we love, you're having these great conversations with Chuck. But your mom was yeah right. Something. I know. I'm I like, know. Oh no! I mean, now even, Chuck's out. No, no. Even I said that. I was like, that was a really great episode with your mom. I mean, your mom is is terrific, and I love her, and uh, and I'm sure you do as well. And America She's does. Right. She's America's mom. 
But um, America's grandmother at this point. Guess that's true. I guess you know she's going to be eighty-three next week, January twenty-eighth. Uh, wow. Yeah. What I was going to say was after listening to her, I got a bunch of letters or you know posts from people just saying, you know, it would have been great if you could have had Mel Brooks instead of Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess. And now yeah. I'm thinking, ah, you know, to have Ron Livingston on the line right now would be kind of interesting, and maybe we could do that, but I'm not sure the podcast... I'm not sure people really care deeply enough, Chuck. <laughs> well, you know what? We'll find out. I'll, I'll start reaching out to some people. Let's We'll see who we can get. I have a feeling it's going to be just your mom. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, we, Barsky would have been a good one for this one. Barsky, we could have had Barsky on here. Yeah. I mean, maybe if, we could have had Barsky. He's really busy. I know he's, he's got busy. a lot going on. He does. Yeah, he does. Yeah, people always say, what's, on, what's your old producer up to? He's been working with uh, Steve uh, Austin over at uh, USA. I believe it's Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin, yeah. Yes. Wasn't Steve Austin also the $6 million man? Was he? Steve Austin, that was his name. A man barely alive. We have the technology. Better, stronger, oh. faster. Lee yes, Majors played Lee... Steve Austin, the oh, $6 million man. Wow, I never made that connection before. There you go. That's what this podcast is about, Chuck. <laughs> Surprising connections for people who might otherwise not give a damn. No, that's what four. That's what uh, six degrees is about. Where did I get four degrees? That's what six degrees is about, Mike. By the way, I don't know if you've looked at the most recent post. Uh, that little outtake of you as Nixon. People oh. absolutely love it. The reviews are coming in. And um, <laughs> right. yes. Yes, we're delighted. I did delighted. get a, I did get a few uh, a few uh, shout outs. Uh, people reached out to me because they'd seen it on Instagram. So to sum up, we're hoping we don't get sued as a result of uh, using a little Beethoven and Band of Brothers at the top. I think we're I think we're in good shape. We're hoping I don't get too much pushback for making sweeping generalizations about the sounds and the rhythms most often associated with black versus white music. I meant no disrespect to uh, Rachel What's-Her-Name or Liz Warren or Hilaria Baldwin or Michael Jackson or Joan Rivers or Ludwig von Beethoven or anybody who ever did anything to alter their appearance in any way, shape, or form. Um, and in fact, as, as, as you and I are having this conversation, Chuck, it occurs to me that this is the anniversary of Martin Luther King's birth. Was is he born on this day? It, it's Martin Luther King Day. I don't know if it was his... Is it his birthday? Do me a favor and it's double a, check that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a holiday. I mean, obviously. it'd be important to know what we're commemorating. Um, the occasion of his birth. I think it's more the 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 totality of his life. Uh, yeah, January fifteenth was his date of birth. Good, good. So, because but today's the eighteenth. So, in real time. Well, in real time. No, no. Today. What is today? Today, it's Martin Luther King it's Day. It's Martin Luther today. King Day, correct. But his birthday was, I guess, Friday. Friends, do you see I'm what I mean the by the correctors? Right. <laughs> I'm just simply trying to make a simple, a simple observation. How's that working out? And, and, and Chuck just can't let me get to it. What I was going to conclude uh, this clearly improvisational uh, romp with is is a modest observation that rather than agonizing over the color of Ludwig van Beethoven. And it's van, by the way, not von. A lot of people confuse the two. I I was just about to correct you with absolutely... I'm sure you were. No, it's it's van Beethoven. He was Flemish, uh, 
the Netherlands. <laughs> Easy. Rather than just be f- so focused on 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 the color. I mean, Jesus, what what's happening to this country, Chuck? I mean, King's whole point was the content of the character, not the color of the skin. And it seems like we're just more focused today on skin color than ever before. But having said that, we should be focused more on composers and geniuses like George Bridgetower. Have you ever heard of George Bridgetower? No. Maybe the greatest black violin virtuoso in Beethoven's time, to whom the composer dedicated his Kreutzer Sonata before retracting the dedication due to a falling out between the pair. But George Bridgetower, an amazing violinist who virtually no one today has heard of. Listen to some of his compositions. Do it right now. You can find them on YouTube. Your heart will break. A talented man, no matter what shade or hue he might have been. Final thoughts, Chuck? Yes. uh, The final thought is that we've uh, listened to chapter six of the book, The Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. We're releasing one chapter a week of the audio version, but you can get the entire audio version if you don't want to wait wherever fine books are sold. And it's also in print and coming out in paperback soon. Hashtag just saying. Mm. That's it. Technically, that would be the third commercial in this this podcast. We've talked for over 30 minutes. My feeling is a 50-minute podcast, all things considered, is probably a reasonable amount of time to inflict three crass commercial messages on an otherwise unsuspecting crowd. So if you got a problem with that, too, you can direct your unhappiness to me <laughs> over on my Facebook page. And please tell us whatever we got wrong. Please do. God knows. I enjoy it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with more of whatever this is. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 